I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. There's nothing quite like taking a nap under a handmade quilt. Quilts are magical. They warm you up when you're a little cold. And a quilt made with a grandmother's love? You can't beat that. But textile art goes beyond the wonders of quilt making. There's also clothing, rug making, and fiber art, to name a few. This kind of work tells stories about many cultures, about history, and about the person who made it. Later this hour, we'll meet some local textile artists and historians and talk about this legacy and the labor of love. But first, it's time for At Us. Each week, we take and read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I am encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville, on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN, and at WPLN News on Facebook. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. I was off last week, and it feels like a lifetime since I've been in the studio. It's so good to have you back. So this week, we had quite a few comments from our listeners about our episode on Robert Altman's film, Nashville. Yes, I really enjoyed hearing some of um, our listeners' memories that they have about the movie. Uh, So after Monday's show, we got a really nice email from Amanda, who says that she dated the actor Alan Garfield in the 80s. Hmm. Alan played Bennett in um, the movie Nashville, and Amanda said that she remembers that he really enjoyed making the film and working with the large cast. Um, She added, quote, Alan signed on to the film to work with Altman. As a director, he was challenging but brilliant. Frankly, I think the film is a sweet piece and should be treasured as such. It really is a great film. I highly recommend for any of y'all to go out there and to see it. My favorite part about the comments we got after this show was that so many people have a personal connection to the film somehow. One of our listeners who goes by Jamski on Twitter shared this. The Altman movie is likely the reason my family visited the city of Nashville when I was young. I must have liked both. I still have the movie and Keith Carradine's album. And I've lived and worked here now for 30 years, but I still haven't been to the Parthenon. Jamski, you got to hit up the Parthenon. It's great. Yeah, especially on a nice summer day. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I really wonder if Altman knew what kind of impact his movie had on the city. Hmm. But anyways, uh, we got another interesting email this week from a listener named Frank in response to our barbershop episode. He wrote to us to say that he'd heard from a barber in Greenbrier about how some shops in Middle Tennessee were picketed and vandalized by unions in the 1970s. Oh, wow. Well, we really didn't have time to get into the history of the barbershop scene in Middle Tennessee in our episode Tuesday. But I'm so intrigued by this. Did you look into it? Yes. And you know what? I fell down a very... Interesting rabbit hole concerning local history. Okay. So just a very short history lesson. So back in the 1950s, union teamsters targeted non-union barbershops in Nashville and other parts of Tennessee, like Knoxville and Chattanooga. Um, Owners were roughed up, windows were smashed, and some shops were severely damaged by sticks of dynamite, which I was like, dang. Mm -hmm. Um, It actually got to be such a problem that there was a congressional hearing on it in 1957, Uh, But the vandalism at the barbershops continued into the 1970s. And you know what? It is a fascinating part of local history. Talk about not being happy with your shape up. (laughs) You know, it sounds like that could be a future episode, huh? Definitely. And you know what? There is a lot more to that story. All right, Anna. There's one more thing. 
Yes. So I got a voicemail from a listener last week after Friday's show. Our first segment was an election recap, and this particular listener was pretty angry with me. Ooh, oh no. <laughs> yes. So we were talking about the results of the Democratic race for the gubernatorial nomination. Jason Martin won that nomination. And in the interview, I asked our political reporter, Blaze Ganey, who is Jason Martin? I mean, that doesn't sound too bad. What was the listener concerned about? She felt like I sounded dismissive, which totally wasn't my intent. I mean, it sounded like our listener clearly knew who Dr. James Martin was, or yes, Dr. Martin was, but there are actually a lot of voters who may not have an idea of who he is, especially if they did not vote in the Democratic primary. Also, Tennessee is notorious for having a low voter turnout. And one of the reasons why is because there's just a lack of voter education about the candidates and the process and whatnot. So as a show, we consider it part of our job to inform voters about all the candidates on the ballot. Totally. And in case you didn't know much about our Democratic nominee for governor, Jason Martin is a first time candidate for office, but he's long been a critical care doctor in Nashville. We'll definitely talk more about Dr. Martin and other candidates for important races as we get closer to the November election. Mm-hmm. So want to give many thanks and a happy return to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you soon. Of course. And our listeners know where to find me online. Don't forget to add us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And let's keep the comments coming. Also, Fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It is super easy and quick and helps us produce shows with your needs and interests in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll meet some local textile artists and learn about the craft of textiles and how it branches off into different forms of art. Are you a quilter? Do you love textiles? Tweet us at thisisnashville. We'll be right back. Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Textile art is beautiful, and it can be so many things. Quilts, clothes, rugs, tapestries, and pretty much anything an artist can dream up. What inspires these artists? What stories are they telling us through their work? How can we develop a deeper connection and appreciation for textiles? My next guests can help to answer those questions. I'd like to introduce textile artist and educator Nuveen Barwari, artist Janira Visepo, and fiber artist Rima Day. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you all for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to get a little bit of your origin stories. Nuveen, what medium do you work with and how did you get started? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I have been deconstructing Kurdish dresses that I've collected from the Nashville Kurdish community and um, turning them into various um, pieces. You know, I think the special thing about textiles is that they are fluid um, and they kind of adapt to whatever you really, wherever you put them. Um, You know, you can wear them, you can... um, collage with them, hang them on the walls like a traditional painting, um, put them on the floor like a rug, um, raise them outside. Um, So yeah, I've been, you know, uh, I kind of identify as like a collage artist. Um, Yeah. That's wonderful. So what was your first piece of work 
that you were super proud of? Um, well, I think my introduction to like fine art probably had to be through like screen printing. Um, I, in my, you know, my introduction to screen printing was kind of, um, through just a lot of protests happening. And there was something about screen printing, um, that was like super efficient, you know, uh, from one screen, you were able to like print on multiple, um, posters or t-shirts. And so I think from, um, screen printing on t-shirts and posters kind of I that led me to like a lot of experimentation on other materials um so yeah and that's pretty much it Mm -hmm. well tell me how has your Kurdish heritage how has that informed your work well I mean I think Kurdish, um, my Kurdish heritage does have a huge role in my practice and research. Um, we have a really rich history of textile art, whether that's um, Kurdish um, traditional handwoven rugs um, or tapestries, um, house, you know, like things like uh, quilts and socks that are made um, in the homes of many. Um, and then even just like Kurdish dressmaking. So I've just been, I've been surrounded by, uh, textiles my entire life, you know, like many of us, you know, every day when we wake up and decide what to wear, um, I, I look at that as a form of, um, collage, you know, putting on, you know, a shirt or what, which shirt will go over, which, you know, pants or whatever. Um, but yeah, like Kurdistan definitely, uh, you know, a brief little history, um, borders were drawn by the French and British in 1916 through the work of diplomats from the respective countries. Um, the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916 set up the British and French mandates for the region with no regard for the ethnic communities of West Asia, the region we call the Middle East. So the Western diplomats during a time of Western colonialism created national boundaries, um, for much of the Southwest um, Asian North African region that we know. Um, Yet, you know, it was not only Western colonialism alone. Kurdistan is akin to a rug that has been cut into four different pieces and occupied by Iraq, Syria, Iran, and Turkey. Um, And this occupation and division of Kurdistan has led to genocide, ethnic cleansing, and state-sanctioned violence, which in turn has produced anti-resistance movements. So, you know, often that's the narrative that we always hear, but something that I like to focus on is like the craft that is being produced by in these regions, you know, and I think um, an issue is that we don't often hear about like, you know, the Kurdish rugs and crafts and stuff is because, um, you know, they're, they haven't been preserved, you know, um, so yeah, I think that's something that like, you know, when I'm making, when I'm using um, the materials that I collect from the Kurdish community in Nashville, um, I think about you know, the fragmented state of diasporic life, the fragmented state of Kurdistan um, and like borders, you know, if we look at borders of the rugs and just borders of a painting and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So uh, these are definitely things that I um, think about a lot, but also like Kurdish music and poetry is something that I grew up listening to a lot. And there's always been um, like a political interpretation as well as a, Uh, romantic interpretation you know a lot of Kurdish poets would use um, like flower motifs and 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 um, metaphors in their in their poetry and in their songs Mm -hmm. um, in fear of the governments occupying their region so I'm kind of 
putting a twist on that within like the visual arts. And, you know, when you first look at my work, it's, you know, it looks like a landscape or it can look, you know, very decorative, but also I'm trying, you know, there's that romantic interpretation, but there's also this political interpretation. Yeah. Art as a political statement. Now, now, Janira, Mm -hmm. tell me, you know, how about you? How did you find your artistic voice? I found my artistic voice just by uh, exploring um, in my early 20s what I wanted to do just as a human, as a person in this world. I felt like working a nine-to-five job wasn't really something I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to explore with block printing and linoleum block printing specifically. I found it really accessible and you can buy the supplies at an art store and then just make everything at home. And that's basically how I started um, experimenting with block printing. I, um, after I found uh, just how I loved working with that medium, I started reading books on Killam rugs and uh, p- uh, pattern textiles and um, I kind of took a lot of my inspiration from that, and uh, that's basically how I started. Well, so what makes your first love block printing? What makes it so different from other art forms? Um, it's a very technical art form. I think a lot of people are scared to try it because you're working with carving knives or, you know, you have an image in your head and then you have to transfer it over to a block. And you don't really know what it's going to turn out like. You can see it in your head. But I think when you transfer, uh, like drawing it directly onto the block or even using an image that you found online, it all comes down to your hands and how you're going to move with your tools when you're carving. So I feel like a lot of people maybe fear that uh, process. Mm -hmm. But I think it's beautiful and it's... Actually, I'm a teacher as well, and a lot of people find it very therapeutic, and um, that's really important uh, for my practice. You've got to get accustomed to making mistakes, I imagine. Absolutely, and you have to embrace those mistakes. Mm -hmm. Now, Rima, you've started off in fashion design, right? Yes. How did that lend to the work that you're doing now? I guess because sewing was so familiar to me, I was able to make pretty much anything I wanted to, um, and but I didn't really have a vision that I wanted to make except for clothes. But I guess especially pandemic, I didn't have anything to do and start experimenting and just so many things to think about. And and this suddenly happened, like I have this vision I like to make and of course I'm so familiar with sewing. And therefore, you know, I didn't think of painting or anything. I just took my needles and thread and I started making things. What was that process like as you've, as you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people were sitting at home, rethinking the nature of our lives. And here you have this vision and you pick up your needle and thread and you start creating art. What was that process like? Um, I don't know. It was, I, it was, I was actually making masks first in the beginning of the pandemic to donate. I was just crazy, like making masks, like thousand masks I donated. Mm. Um, I just couldn't stop making things. And I was trying to make something that I was making before, like a clothes type of things. But then I started to 
get more interested in, you know, I don't need to make something to use or I don't want to anymore because I don't know when we can actually you know, wear nice clothes and go outside. Mm-hmm. So I started to um, get more ideas from nature, especially like parks and, um, you know, rivers. And I really found that um, like root systems are beautiful and I wanted to incorporate that. I wanted to make it and I wanted to um, mean something, connect to nature, I guess. It's it kind of like happened like that. Mm-hmm. Now, can you describe for us something you're working on now? Um, I'm working on a, a book uh, with a organza fabric, which is transparent. So I make uh, stitches kind of like a, more three-dimensional than normal embroidery, but it looks like a root system of black vessels because I use lots of red. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it, to me, it's like writing a story on the fabric. That's wonderful. Now, Nuveen, tell me, how important are the materials that you use in your artwork? How important are they? Um, well, they're, they're very important. You know, when I'm dealing with, I'm receiving, um, materials, old Kurdish dresses, um, from the community. And, you know, as I'm receiving them, I'm looking at, um, you know, a lot of the dresses at the bottom of them will have like mud stains from, you know, probably, you know, the picnics and um, a lot of the portals where the head would go through um, will have like makeup stains. So there's a sense of like history and loss and but at the same time, like regeneration and like reimagining, you know, um, even like the rugs that I receive from the community um, happen to be um like machine made rugs they're not traditional Kurdish rugs. They're all like, you know, um, manufactured by like a machine and have been designed by a software to make them like 100% symmetrical. So even like looking at that and seeing like, Oh wow. Like, you know, Nashville has one of the largest, um, Kurdish communities in the United States. And yet all these like old rugs that I'm receiving happen to be like, you know, manufactured rugs. Um, why is that? You know, and that kind of dig, you know, I, and that kind of leads me into like digging even more, you know, thinking about um, diasporic communities. What does that mean? What is available to us? Um, what, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of diasporic life involves adapting and kind of settling for what is around you and what is accessible and what is affordable. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, it's like very easily um, distinguishable which rugs, you know, are handmade or which ones are machine made or which um, fabrics were bought at like, you know, Walmart or Joann's versus the fabrics that were imported from Kurdistan. But even if we dig a little deeper into that, like a lot of the, uh, the fabrics that, um, are in the shops in Kurdistan and the bazaars um, aren't even, you know, they're not even made in Kurdistan. So there's definitely the study of like consumerism, capitalism, um, and displacement in a sense too. So yeah, the, the, the materials are really important to me. Um, I find a very special connection between, you know, not only like, the dresses, like I think about like, okay, who made this dress, you know, and looking at the stitches that they made. And then I'm like undoing those stitches and, and constructing them and stretching them across, um, the, uh, you know, kind of, uh, stretching and forcing the fabrics and Kurdish dresses out of their original flowy state to make them quote unquote, um, behave like traditional paintings, stapling, Mm. 
the fabric to the stretcher bars sometimes feels like a aggressive and violent act. And perhaps, you know, that tension of the fabric being stretched from different directions is a form of assimilation and result of diasporic living. So there's a lot of conceptualizing um, the materials mm-hmm. that I use. Yeah, that's pretty deep. Now, Janira, <laughs> you know, what do you think about when you're working with the materials? For me, it's really a process of going into another world in my own studio practice and just disappearing. It's a very safe space for me um, to, if I'm having a bad day or if I'm dealing with some emotional past traumas, I uh, love to go into my practice and uh, escape and create um, something otherworldly or maybe tap into a spiritual uh, practice that I find just from working with um, textiles and carving and printing and doing the same motions over and over again. You have one block, but how can you really uh, make it into a different piece each time? Because with block printing, you're printing the same image over and over again. And I've had my blocks for many or a couple years now, and I just... I can picture each piece I've made in the past with them and not because it's printmaking. A lot of people think it's the same piece, like additioned pieces, Mm -hmm. but really with me, block printing is so versatile. You can make it a unique piece each time. Um, But yeah, for me, it's just uh, escaping into another world and really uh, tapping into something that um, hasn't been seen before. And so it becomes a practice and a ritual for mm, you. Absolutely, yes. That's beautiful. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colona. We're talking this hour about the craft of textile arts with Nuveen Barwari, Janira Visepo, and Rima Day. Now, creating art is about, like, taking the world around us, making the artwork that is a reflection of it. Rima, what do you pay attention to that gives you inspiration? Um, I guess for me it's... Uh human body and nature and i'm really stuck on this idea that um nat- similarity between human body and nature meaning like a uh, blood vessels and um, root systems and i sometimes feel like that's all emotion must look like we can't see them but that's probably how it's formed like a little small vessels to big ones and and sometimes you cannot contain inside of you know, hard, you know, sometimes it spills out. And that's why my thread comes out from my books or gloves or whatever I make. Um, so that's, that's, I guess, uh, what I'm always thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was looking at some of your artwork yesterday in doing research, and it does come out. It's like a three-dimensional touch mm-hmm. to your work. And you, you mentioned it a little bit before, but tell me about why, how how expanding those dimensions really helps us, you know, perceive your work differently? Um, I guess because it's not, like, finished almost. It looks like it's still going on. It would reach to you. Um, I wasn't really sure why I was doing that, but then I started seeing it's probably my way of trying to reach to some somebody or something. Um, I'm not sure the answer, but I think, you know, 
not so many things are just clear cut. This is it. This is finished.、Mm-hmm. And sometimes it looks like it's finished, but it's still going on and it's like our lives.、Mm-hmm. Kind of like our lives,、yeah. like nature.、Mm-hmm. We're unfinished products still、right. evolving. Yeah. Now, Nuveen, you know, you talked about art, your art, as a form of expression and a form、mm-hmm. of, you know, really talking about, you know, politically things that have happened and displacement. You know, what have people who've seen your work? Said to you about the messages they receive from it? Yeah.、Um, well, you know, I think my work definitely evolved a lot、um, over the years.、Um, now I'm making a lot of more working in abstraction.、Um, but in the past, I mean, there's, I mean, one thing that I think a lot of people, you know, for example, when I told you,、um, Earlier, about how a lot of the rugs that I receive are, you know,、um, industrially manufactured rugs.、Um, I think a lot, I've, I've had people, kind of a writers or curators or whatever, they've、um, labeled them like, oh, yeah, like she works with、um, Kurdish traditional rugs. And it's like, wait, no, these are not traditional、mm. Kurdish rugs. So there's definitely already these like pre,、um, what's the word? Like, These notions that people already or these、um, interpretations or labels that people already kind of、um, put on the work, even if I decide to, which I do have a series of、um, like cupcakes. I used to paint cupcakes for a while just to kind of、um, challenge people's ideas of like, you know, and, and just me being a Kurdish woman living in America. And at the end of the day, no matter what I make, is going to already have that political.、Um, You know, interpretation. So it's it's sometimes、um, it's funny to to me. I like kind of、um, challenging the viewer and and、um, into what what it is that they are seeing. But of course, you know,、um, educational. I think a lot of people do、um, learn a lot. And I kind of I like to utilize like the titles of pieces, even if like the work is not.、Um, If the message isn't like visually like in your face, like what I'm trying, like the story that I'm trying to tell,、yeah. um, if it's not like super in your face, at least I, I utilize like the, the titles of a lot of pieces、um, or the, the statements of the pieces. You know, sometimes I'll just print out like a, a news article、um, that may have、um, inspired the piece and we'll、uh-huh. use that as. Artist statement, you know?、Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. Get, you get them to glean in. I, I love that. Now, you know,、mm-hmm. Janeiro, what makes Nashville's textile scene unique to you? I, textile scene in Nashville, I, that's a tough question because I feel like it's so at its emerging point at the moment. And culturally, I, I've been in Nashville 20 years, and I would say I'm very new to the textile community.、Um, I think what makes it unique is that you can, and I think in general in the artist community, you can take any medium and turn it into whatever you want. I think there's endless opportunities in the Nashville community to start with something small, just How I did it, I thought that I wanted to make clothing when、mm-hmm. I first started. And then I ended up making tapestries. So it, I, I think, as an example personally, for me, is that you can just start anywhere from anywhere and then 
uh, evolve with it. That's wonderful. I want to thank you so much. That is textile artist Janira Vicepo. She was joined by fiber artist Rima Day and art educator and artist Nuveen Barwari. Thank you all so much for being with us today. Thank you, Khalil. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore the history of textile art and how it's been building in community for generations. Where have you seen beautiful textile arts? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. If you're like me, you can imagine it. Sewing machines buzzing to make quilts just in time for the fall. Steady hands examining pieces of fabric, then carefully stitching them together. Arranging patterns and colors create something completely new out of scraps. That's what comes to mind when I think of quilt making. The craft can be a solo or communal effort, but it's always done with love. My next guest knows this all too well. Kosher Briley is a quilter and serves as secretary for the Zuri Quilting Guild. Kosher, thank you so much for being with us today. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Absolutely a pleasure. So tell me about the Zuri Quilting Guild. That sounds like some serious business. <laughs> it is. Uh, quilting and um, embracing our culture definitely always is for me and as well as my fellow members of our Zuri Quilting Guild. So to give you some history of our Quilting Guild, it was established um, in 2019. Um, and it actually came about from the Ray of Hope Community Church here in Nashville. Um, Reverend Judith War Warloth Sauls and Renita Weems, Dr. Renita Weems, said they wanted to get a class together for the women of the church. It was a six-week program to do some quilting, and it started from there. And here we are, years later, with a, a group of phenomenal women who come together monthly, and we quilt together and learn so much from each other. Um, not only with quilting, but as a group of women who are mothers, grandmothers, aunts, just embracing who we are and the art of quilting. Now, have you been with the Guild since its inception? I have not. I actually joined uh, through a program through the Metro Arts Commission um, back in 2016. So that'll be seven years for me. Um, I was a part of a workshop um, that was set up to introduce African-American women in the Bordeaux and Weiss Creek area to quilting. The ultimate goal at that time was to introduce myself and the other women to seeing quilting as a form of preserving our traditions, um, shaping our identity and expressing our, our neighborhood value. So seven years of um, being a part of the guild for me. So what? how long does one have to be in the guild to be called a master quilter? Hmm. I think it just comes along with your experience that you have already coming into the guild. I myself had been sewing since I was in high school. Um, I was one of those uh, peculiar kids. I would look at clothes and wonder how they got formed and I would take things apart and try and figure out how to put it back together. So I had some sewing experience when I was introduced into the guild, but I had not quilted before. Um, so I can 
came in as a beginner, but someone who may have already gotten experience in their past or may have quilted with their grandmother or their mother, they could come in as an intermediate or advanced and become ultimately a master quilter um, of uh, the guild. So, you know, a few minutes ago, I said how I imagined quilting, but what is the process? How is it done actually? Hmm. I'll try and simplify it, but I know it's different depending on the type of quilts that you make because you can do um, abstract quilts, you can do strip quilts, and then you can do applique, which is actually one of my favorites um, to, to see and try and do, but we have some master quilters who are very good at that. Um, but at the beginning of the inception is knowing what your idea is. Um, and what it is that you want to do, um, whether you actually have a pattern that you want to follow, or if you just want to freehand and just see what comes about. You want to pick out your fabrics um, and knowing what colors you're specifically wanting your your ultimate uh, project to end up being. You're going to pick out your threads. You're going to ensure that you have um, the um, right type of materials for your machine. Um, or if you want to do that by hand, you want to make sure you know all of that at first. And then that first step is going to be piecing. Um, and that's usually the first thing that you see at the uh, the front of the quilt. And that's usually what takes the longest, right? You're patching together all of your patterns and you're sewing that together. You're cutting um, at the right angles to ensure that your ultimate end goal is being met. And then you would take your piecing and your, your batting um, and your, um, your fabric on the, on the back and you, sew and quilt that together and then you bind it so just in those easy three steps it's a lot more than that mm -hmm. if depending on what how intricate your um, patchwork will be but um yeah that's that's about it okay I, I love how you said easy three steps doesn't sound easy to me at all <laughs> you know now i'd like to introduce my next guest vladimir bettenker is the coordinator of esl and public speech at heart unifying communities vladimir thanks for being with us oh thank you for having us so explain what heart unifying communities is and who your students are Okay, uh, Heart Unifying Communities um, is a project that we started developing last year uh, with um, a friend of us who is Elvira. She studies at Vanderbilt University and my wife, Marcella, who is the artistic part. We decided to create um, a program that will help Latin artists integrate in, with the community and with the artists that are from, from Nashville. There are very few spaces and opportunities for these Latin artists to show their art and connect, you know, network with, with other people that are in the art uh, field. So that's how we started. We wrote our uh, grant uh, for the fellow partners and we, we got the grant. Then we started working with both institutions. Elvira, Elvira works with uh, Vanderbilt University and I work with TSU. So we started like getting um, all the resources together and we created this program with uh, Latino artists, right? Latinx artists. And, and many of them, they, they had never even tried to sue anything or to teach or to do any kind of, of textile art, mm -hmm. but they came and, and they experienced and it was, it, we got great results. What was the inspiration to add textile art to the program? 
Well, I will say that textile art was the original inspiration. Mm -hmm. um, my wife, Marcela and Elvira, um, had the chance to do um, an exhibit in Vanderbilt University. And when they saw the passion that, that she had for, for the art and how much she wanted to share that knowledge that comes from her family for many generations, then decided to create this, um, we decided to create the, the project and then the literature and the creative writing came along and then ESL came too because we started seeing things that we will need. The, 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 the initial idea was to create this art exhibit that we had last June. Um, so when we saw the result, what we wanted was to give this Latino artist the possibility to show their art and connect with other um, local artists. Mm -hmm. So. But I will say the, the textile art was the origin of, of the project on helping artists connect. Now, you know, as we were in break, mm -hmm. you were mentioning to <laughs> Janira and Rima that your wife is an artist and you yes. really connected and felt a lot of what they were saying mm -hmm. about, you know, how she finds inspiration and goes about that work. Mm -hmm. I know you see that with the students. What have the students told you about the process in this project that you offer? Well, if you have about three hours to talk about this, <laughs> but no, it was it was great. The 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 the, the students, artists, whatever you want to call them, um, I became one of them. I was there just to move stuff around, move stuff around, and and carry stuff, and and I ended up just uh, weaving as well, and and they. Many of them, they, this was so emotive for them. It was so, he, we, we felt that the creative writing and the weaving became healing for them. Many of mm -hmm. them have very difficult backgrounds in the stories they have because all of them are immigrants. So it became a healing process and they felt that the possibility of expressing through words and through art their stories was was very beneficial for them. Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake We're talking this hour about the legacy of textile art and how it builds community. Now, Kosher, I imagine all the stories that the members of the Zurdy Guild share when you all get together. Is there anything memorable that you've heard in your time with the Guild? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, our guild on a yearly basis, uh, prior to COVID, we done um, quilting, um, like getaways or um, the, the word obviously is not coming to mind, but where we would come together in groups and all we do the whole weekend is quilt. Mm -hmm. um, and just imagine if you love quilting and you get together in a big room full of women that you love who share the same interests as you and you get together and quilt, um, it's, it's very memorable. So, um, some of the stories I've heard prior to when I joined were just of great times that were shared, um, together of the woman quilting at Montgomery Bell. Um, and that's a, a state park, not far away from here in Nashville, um, beautiful location and just being embraced in that environment, being together and just enjoying making quilts together. Um, so that's one of the, um, the uh, stories that I've heard about, um, just the women coming together and being able to just define or have their time quilting together as one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, quilting, it goes back a really long way. And you yeah. know, do, do you see many young women or men 
involved in the group or seeking interest? Um, I've seen um, people who've asked me about it um, when they learn that I'm a part of a quilting guild and that I quilt um, and they take interest, especially if they've uh, sewn before. Actually, someone here at my job, he lives in California. Um, he um, was making a, a T-shirt quilt. So we communicated heavily on how he could do that. I was helping to guide him through it. And he's younger than me. He's got to be in like his late 20s. So Mm -hmm. So it was very um, exciting um, to have someone who's interested in it. And so um, he and I are staying connected um, and exchanging ideas and things back and forth on how he can improve and continue to work on his quilting. So for me personally, when people find out that I do I, um, get an interest and then they want to um, have some guidance or help, which I always I'm ready to provide. Mm. But like you said, quilting does go back a, a really long way. So it's good that the arts of quilting is still around and people are interested in keeping it going. I wonder how a young person can benefit from joining the guild and learning the craft and art of quilting. I mean, I, I would imagine patience is the first and most important thing <laughs> they would learn. Yeah, I, when I came in, I'm 38 now. Um, so this was seven years ago. I I think I was and may still be the youngest member in our guild. So from my perspective, coming in as a, a younger woman, it was more than just quilting, um, being able to get um, in a group of women who are of the same culture as me, but we all have very diverse backgrounds and still be able to learn from them. This is their group of women who are mothers, um, whether you have young children, your children are adolescents, preteen or adults. Um, it still gives you the opportunity to learn from other women while doing something that you love. I love being able to come together with my uh, quilting guild sisters and someone's talking about their grandchildren, you know, going mm. to college, you know, and we can share in experiences and things that I would look forward to or learn from things that they've learned in their lives. So um, again, with patience, the patience that you spoke to just as an art, definitely that can go into it because because that patchwork, it definitely <laughs> requires patience. And depending on how intricate your designs will be, I personally love strip quilts. Um, and that is where I can take what's called a jelly roll, which may consist of uh, a roll of fabric that's about two inches. And all only thing I have to do is just attach those pieces and continue to go and, and cut as I go, depending on however big my... Um, quilts is uh, set out to be mm -hmm. but then I, I've delved into applique um, and with that it takes a lot more patience a lot more um, planning um, as to how you want that to go but I never um, yeah. am too hard on myself when it comes to the, what the end design is because I think there's a beauty in art not being planned as well because life isn't planned all the time. You That's, can plan as much as you want. Yes, you can. Yes, <laughs> you yes. can. And working on a quilt will teach you how to overcome those hurdles mm -hmm. and still have your beautiful end product at the uh, end of it. So that there's definitely true. patience and life lessons and learning how to overcome hurdles that I think quilting definitely provides. Okay, so I got 40 seconds left. Vladimir, have you been impressed with any of the students' work in your program? Well, Definitely. We had an art exhibit uh, that is now uh, running in, in, in Casa Asafran, mm -hmm. and all their art pieces were just amazing. And she talks about patience. 
creating these looms with people that have never tried it, it, it really grew on on our participants to 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 learn how to to be patient and create the art pieces and and again as she say planning this is almost impossible whatever they had on the first sketch was definitely not what came out of it all right i want to thank you so much that is vladimir bentoncourt from heart unifying communities he was joined by kosher briley with the zuri quilting guild thanks to you both for being with us today okay so thank before we go we're going to learn a little bit more about another textile art form oriental rugs from weaving to washing and preserving them it's an intricate process. We sent our intern, Doreen Schernecki, out to Abbas Rugs on White Bridge Pike to meet longtime rug seller, Abbas Tahiriwan. There's early afternoon natural light beaming in, and the smell of mung bean soup hangs in the air. It feels like I've just walked into the living room of a Middle Eastern household. Except there are hundreds of rugs, some rolled and off to the side, some displayed on the nice hardwood floor. And then that one, it was made around 1890, 1900. That's the college Persian Sorapi. And this is an excellent condition. He points to a rug hanging in the back. It's a deep, dark red with flowers made of more colors than I notice at first glance. Green, brown, orange and cream. The color combination, as you see, is magnificent. And uh, uh, the size, most of these rugs are very unusual. This is around 9 by 17 feet, wow. which you don't see that many. How much would it cost? This one probably costs about $27. His shop may be full of rugs, but I have to wonder what his home looks like. Uh, I don't have more room to put rugs, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> If I did, I would put more. At my house, oh, oh, more than five. In one room, is more than five even. <laughs> per room, uh, it depends really. In the living room, there is three rugs. In the dining room, is two rugs. One on the table, one under the table. And there's a bunch in the closet. There's a bunch in the chest. Abbas is 76, and he's been here almost his whole life. He came for college and finished his studies at MTSU. His father wanted him to teach English, but Abbas wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and open his own rug store. Most of Iranians, they, they grew up with rugs because their homes is full of rugs and they always get to know it somehow. And some they show more interest and some they don't, you know. And I was always interested in, in, in the art of rug making. So that's what he pursued. I started the business from nothing, actually, very little. I started the cleaning and repair, and, and I knew some about how to repair the rugs, how to clean them. So that's how we started. Then, then I got more in, interested in antique rugs, and that's where you see all these rugs come. There's actually a lot that goes into the making of one of these rugs. The rugs are made, uh, it goes a lot, I mean, I gotta give you a book to read about it. It's really hard to explain. I'm not going to read to you from the book, so here's the quick version. First, a farmer shears her sheep for wool, then takes it to market. A buyer might then dye the wool using plants and vegetables, and then sell that wool again to weavers. Then the weaver follows a design pattern. You've probably seen it before. 
flowers and geometric shapes woven in vibrant, rich colors like burgundy and brown. A 9x12 rug might take two years to make, even with five or six people working on it just about every day. Oh God, yes. If you know how much back and hand and eye and neck needs this, then you appreciate every inch of it. If it's taken care of properly, these handwoven rugs can last over a hundred years. But the care is pretty complicated too. At Ebus, they do it all by hand. Yeah, hand done is probably the best method. This is how it's originally done. Now you'll get a good workout, <laughs> but at the same time, you'll see a major, result, a major difference versus machine. Mm -hmm. That's Mike Johnson. He manages the store and does a lot of that cleaning himself. We come here and we dust. First, he flips the rug over and vacuums to loosen the grime and dirt stuck between the fibers. This is called dusting. Then he flips it back over and takes it to what he calls the pool, where the washing happens. At Ebba's rugs, they use an olive-based soap. Its low pH helps preserve the natural lanolin of the wool. After this step, the rug looks lighter, more vibrant. With a wet vac, they absorb the dirt and water, and after it dries, they hose it down and scrub it with soap at least one more time sometimes four. It's a thorough process. Finally, they hang it up to dry. We stick it outside. That's a natural process of drying as well. Okay. So, you know, you get that sunshine smell. But this method of washing the rugs by hand is more and more rare. Even the art of weaving the rugs by hand is disappearing. Today might not take as long because they're not putting as much effort to it. They just want to produce it faster and bring it to the market. Mm. The reproduction of them and they take a lot of design out of it, and a lot of colors out of it, so it's less color and less design, so it makes it faster. Ebba's won't even refer to these mass-produced rugs as rugs. He calls them floor coverings. Floor coverings is a machine made. They go just for color, not, not the quality, not the age, and uh, it's gotta work with what the furniture they have, like very contemporary. And those are uh, the rugs that you buy in the next few years is gonna wear out and you gotta throw it away and buy another one. But this rug is gonna last for a long, long time. And you gotta always pass it down to the next generation. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Schernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Amanda Smith and Annabeth Dooley. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.